Okay, so back to what we're talking about, which is marriage. Um, explosion is the kind of thing that I think we hear about uh, when we hear about marriages failing. You know, explosion, uh, m- major moral failure, financial failure, um, adultery, um, you know, uh, abandonment. Those are the types of things that we hear when we hear about a marriage failing. Uh, typically, you hear about a, a marriage failure you automatically in your mind go to a place where you think, I wonder what went wrong. You know, I wonder, usually the first thing we think is somebody was probably unfaithful or maybe there was, there was some sort of an addiction or there was some just massive destructive event that ruined the marriage. When the reality is marriages unravel through a process of erosion and that erosion happens at the point of personal holiness uh, in either husband or wife or both it's erosion that we have to guard against it's erosion that we have to guard against it's uh it's it's typically not an overnight event that a marriage unravels and and something else that i think uh is is worth thinking about is that just because a marriage lasts for 40 or 60 or 70 years doesn't mean it's a successful marriage just because you stick to your commitment doesn't mean it's, it's a successful marriage. Now, it is an admirable thing. You know, I think about uh, a lot of people from that World War II generation that stay married 40, 50, 60, and 70 years. And it's admirable to have that kind of, uh, you know, commitment-keeping resolve. But that doesn't mean a marriage is successful. A marriage is successful when it reflects what the scripture says a marriage is supposed to be. That's a successful marriage. And when we allow erosion to occur in in our relationship, we are setting that marriage up for failure either in maybe that looks like divorce or maybe not. Maybe it looks like, well, we just stick it out. But it's in in the end, it's not a marriage that reflected the gospel. And so I want to talk this morning about um, kind of safeguarding against erosion in the marriage. And we'll go back to the text we were in last night, uh, Genesis 2. And I want to read a very familiar portion of Scripture then going into Genesis 3, which is the first failure in marriage. The first failure in marriage was also the first failure in humanity. It's when the first sin came into the world. And so I want to I read just kind of that fall and failure. And then I want to talk briefly about five things. First list that I want to go over is five things that we can learn from Adam and Eve and how their relationship eroded because it wasn't explosive. When we read the fall of, of, of man and we read Adam and Eve falling into temptation, it looks like an explosion occurs, you know, sort of Satan creeps in, he tempts them and boom, everything blows up. But we have to see that in the text of, of, of the scripture, what has happened is certain things and aspects of their relationship have eroded to the point that then the fall occurs. And so that's what we got to learn from. Genesis 3, 1, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. Uh, a thought there that I think we, we should probably pause and think about is, why did God put the one tree there? You ever think about that? Why is the one tree there? If, if, if everything there is enjoy this, have dominion over this, take pleasure in this, and then here's the one tree. And I've heard it explained a lot of different ways. You know, maybe it's... Uh, 
they need an opportunity for failure in order to succeed or, you know, to, to, to measure success. You need an opportunity for failure. I think the, 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 a couple things are happening here, um, the, and I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think a couple things are happening. One, by putting the tree there that would bring destruction, God is, is showing the glory of his gifts. In comparison to his gifts, what God is giving them, then in comparison to that, this brings destruction. I think that's a, a lesson that we need to learn. So what God has given us in marriage and in family and in relationship should be measured against the moral failure that comes when we, when we walk away from God's purpose and design. So in, in other words, it gives them an opportunity for a fuller worship experience with the Lord because it gives them an opportunity for obedience. Obedience leads to full worship. We said last night, marriage is first about worship. It's not first about romance. So what God's done is he set them up for worship through obedience. And so the tree is there and they recognize it. And the serpent is going to now twist uh, God's words. He says in verse four, um, you shall not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you'll be like God knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. It, it, now, listen. Interesting. Think about last night, what we saw in chapter two, that everything in the garden was good to the eyes and good for food. Now, in a completely new light and new context, listen, please don't miss this. The serpent is taking the value and the truth that God has presented. God had said, here's the garden. It's good to look at and it's good to partake in. The serpent is now taking the one thing that God said doesn't fit into that category. This is not good. Don't look at this. Don't partake of this. Guard against this. And the serpent is saying, no, no, no. Let's attribute the value that God places on these things to the thing that will bring destruction. That's the way, that's the, way the enemy works. He says, that which will bring destruction will, in a twist and perversion of what God's given... He will convince you, try to convince you that the thing that will bring destruction is actually going to be what brings God's promises in your life, which is happiness and joy and fulfillment. And now how it works and how it works. And so he twists it even at the core of what God had given in his gift. Um, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and it was delight of the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now, it's just like, you know, one of the saddest passages of scripture in, in all of the Bible. And what I want to do is I want to look at what happened in the erosion of Adam and Eve's relationship. And, 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 and see, how do we guard against that? Number one, number one, we see a lack of a fear of the Lord. You want to safeguard your marriage against erosion? Build a marriage on the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord, not the reverence of the Lord or an awe of the Lord, but a biblical fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord. The writer uh, in Proverbs 1 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Beginning of wisdom. In fact, we see it play out in uh, in in this story where uh, when God comes to Adam and Eve and they're hiding in the garden, and God says, "What are you doing?" He says, uh, "Well, uh, we're afraid." Okay. When they when they at that moment in their fear, when they confess their fear, they're now in a position to receive God's grace and mercy and identify it as grace and mercy. A fear of the Lord will highlight and amplify grace and mercy. 
Because a fear of the Lord gives us an awareness of our need for grace and mercy. So a fear of the Lord is, is, is foundational to a biblical marriage. Uh, so as the writer of Proverbs says, a fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and understanding. He also says then in the next proverb, Proverbs 2. Give me a second. Proverbs chapter 2. In, in fearing the Lord and as that leads to wisdom... Proverbs 2, 6 says this, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Verse 7, Proverbs 2, He's a shield to those who walk in integrity. That's what your marriage needs, a shield, right? We need to be safeguarded. We need a shield. We need a wall of protection around our homes. You used to... When I was growing up, oftentimes would hear uh, a prayer articulated where someone would ask the Lord to put a hedge of protection. Or, and, and that's what we're talking about, that there would be a shield, only a hedge. I don't like that word. It's like bushes, you know. How about like a, a concrete? You ever been to Fontana Dam or the Hoover Dam? Fontana Dam is like 300 feet deep. I mean, 300 feet thick of concrete. 300 feet thick of concrete. That's a That's a... That's a shield. You imagine a wall like that around your home and around your marriage. And what leads to that type of protection is a biblical fear of the Lord. Adam and Eve did not fear God. In fact, they presumed on his kindness. They presumed on his kindness. And the writer Paul in, in Romans 2 says that we, if we need not presume on God's kindness because God's kindness is there to lead us to repentance. But if we fail to be led to repentance through God's kindness, then ultimately we will be led to destruction and wrath and judgment. So a fear of the Lord enables us to not presume on his kindness, but enables us to receive his grace. And so Adam and Eve teach us the importance of fear in the Lord. They didn't fear the Lord. I mean, think about it. How, how much stronger, question, question for you. How much stronger would your marriage be if you had that shield around it? Just, just, just guarding your home and your marriage. See, we all need that. We need that shield of protection. Number two, what's missing in Adam and Eve's uh, marriage when we see them in the garden? Fear of the Lord. Number two, thanksgiving. They're not thankful. It's, I mean, this is like the human condition. They've got one million trees inside that they can take fruit from, from right? And what do they do? Ah. But there's this one. And that's rooted in, it's, I think, as much as just being rebellious, it's rooted in a lack, a lack of thanksgiving. They're not thankful for what they have. I think one of the healthiest things that we can do in marriage is to daily just give thanks for different things that we love about our husband, our wife, our spouse. You, you begin to thank the Lord and lift the Lord up. I mean, lift up to the Lord, your husband or your wife, in, in thanksgiving. And be specific, even if it means writing it down or journaling it, and just giving the Lord thanks for the, the, the husband or wife that he's blessed you with. Thanksgiving is an act of worship. And thanksgiving is, is something that will shield and guard our marriages. And Adam and Eve didn't give thanks. They just didn't do it. Thanksgiving leads to satisfaction. You sitting down there. I don't know if you ate gravy and biscuits this morning, but every time I eat there, uh, I didn't get it this morning. I missed it. I ate a stupid, some stupid little nutrition bar, not like a bar thing, you know, like a granola bar, or some mess. I, 
I was in a hurry and I just grabbed something. And you ever do something and afterwards you think, I didn't think that through. That's how I feel right now. Um, <laughs> that evaporated in my left leg about the time I hit the car. So when you sit down there and you, you eat that gravy, I have people tell me that that biscuit and gravy is bad for you. That is a lie from hell. <laughs> Give thanks. That's, a lot of times I'll sit there and I'll eat that. It's so good. I don't know what Sam does, but it's like, it's like an opiate. You know, it's like, oh, I want to go down there and eat that. And I, I'll sit there and I'll just think, but oftentimes when I'm having food to eat and I just think, Lord, thank you for giving me this food. And in that moment, there's a different satisfaction that comes when you're just giving thanks. And, and that, that's, that's goofy, but it's true. And pretty much any, any aspect of our lives, as we're giving thanks, that generates a deeper satisfaction for the gift God's given us. So I'm giving thanks for my marriage, for my spouse. That's going to generate a deeper satisfaction in what God's given me. And Adam and Eve failed to do that. They weren't, they weren't satisfied with, God, with what God had given them. And I think there's a direct correlation, their, their, their lack of satisfaction is directly linked to their failure to give thanks. We don't, we don't see them giving thanks. I think, I think, uh, in, in, I wrote in the margin here, just, I think this was a note to myself, um, which by the way, when you're, when you, if you're a pastor, I mean, we got a few pastors and teachers and student pastors here. When you prepare to preach, you usually get wrecked so bad by what you're preparing. It just, I have, thank you all very much. You're going to have a miserable 24 hours. I've had a miserable two weeks preparing this and realizing my own shortcomings in marriage. Um, but, uh, I'd written this note. How are some ways that I can daily thank the Lord for my spouse, for my wife and my marriage? So I think it's practical just to, to pause sometimes and ask ourselves these questions. How do I what, practically some ways that I can just give thanks for the wife that God's given me? I think it's important to do that. Number three, they failed to worship and obey because worship is obedience. When we obey, we're, it, it's an act of worship. We obey the Lord. It's an act of worship. They failed to do that. They were, they were disobedient. And number four, they did not grow in a knowledge of God's word. Now, God had instructed them and given his word to them back in, in Genesis 2. And uh, starting in verse 16 and, and, and over the next couple of verses, God gives them instruction. And so they received the word of the Lord, but then it, it appears that they did not then grow in the word of the Lord. And remember, they're walking with the Lord in the garden, they're having fellowship with God. They're communing with God. But I think they got static in that relationship. It would seem there's not a growing knowledge of the word of God. And so we need a lot of us, we're just relying on what we knew when we were 15 or, or 8 or 10 or whatever. You know, what we learned in Sunday school. And that's kind of, that's where we stalled out in our, in our biblical growth. And we need to be growing in the word of the Lord. And there needs to be a constant and continual growth in the knowledge of God's word. And number five, their marriage did not serve to sanctify their spouse. So marriage is to serve the sanctification of my, of my wife, it's especially for men. Uh, Paul says in Ephesians 5 that Christ sanctifies the church. And what that means is, um, that word sanctification just means that my goal for my wife is her pursuit of holiness. 
So I want to see her pursue the Lord. I want to see her affections set on the Lord. I want to see her satisfaction and joy be met and fulfilled in Christ. That's my highest goal for her. And it should, and ladies, it should be that that's your highest goal for your husband. So it should work both ways. The sanctification of my spouse. So what Adam does when he's standing there and he's watching his wife be deceived, the problem is he's not concerned for her holiness. That's the problem. That's the root of it. He's got to, I've got to be concerned for her holiness. And so what is going to serve to grow her in holiness? Now, for a lot of us, I think if we, if we put ourselves in a situation that Adam and Eve are in, then what we see is we, we may have, the, the erosion may have already begun. You look at those five characteristics, and, and the reality is most of us would be able to say in, in all five of those, at least to some degree, we're falling short. Not giving thanks like I should. I'm not investing in my wife's sanctification like I should. I'm not growing as I should in the knowledge of the Word of God. So we look at those five things, and, and we could either become discouraged, or we could at least go, man, I really need to pick it up. I need to pick it up. And I think that we need to understand that to turn marriage is like a big ship. You know, if you've ever been on a, you know, get on a, like a jet ski, a personal watercraft and boy, they'll turn so fast. Won't they just, well, when you're single, a lot of, a lot of life decisions, just boom, you can turn on a dime and go right. But marriage, the longer you've been married, it's this big ship and it's tracking through the ocean. And to get that turned can be a really laborious task i mean it can be a big task can't it so where do we start with that well we start with confession of sin start with confession of sin our marriages should be to some degree defined by confession of sin uh james uh one of one of uh one of my favorite verses in all the bible james five sixteen. james says this therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working so in praying for one another, there's healing that comes. Then there's power that is unleashed. And what we need in our marriages is, is the power of God unleashed. What Adam and Eve needed, standing there in the garden, as the power of the enemy came against them, was they needed the power of God unleashed to defend them against the enemy. Because those other areas, they had failed, so the shield was down. The fear of the Lord was not in place. The wisdom of God was not in place because, because they had let their guard down in so many ways. And so when the enemy came in, there was nothing to combat the enemy with. Well, what James is saying is that confession becomes an offensive weapon to unleash, not just to guard our marriages, but to attack the enemy as he comes against us. So confession of sin is the beginning of change and growth. Uh, so uh, I want to give you a... Uh, uh, a couple of thoughts, actually more than a couple, but I'm not going to tell you how many. Um, I'll give you a few thoughts on confession. Number one, confession has to be honest. Has to be honest. You got a porn addiction, dude, you need to, first off, you need to knock it off. And then you need to tell your wife you got a problem and you need counseling. You can't live in the dark with your wife sleeping next to you. Confession has to be honest. If you're, when your husband goes to work, if you're, if you got a, you know, uh, we counsel one couple where, she would get these credit cards, you know, these scams, man. It's like introductory rate of 0.1% and you don't read the fine print. It's like, that's for the first 24 hours. And then it goes to like 31%, you know, and she would get these cards, man. She just like, she had an addiction and she'd just rack up. She'd max this card out buying just garbage. And he'd be off at work and he wouldn't know. You can't, we can't, we have to be honest. You can't, our marriages have to be lived in the light in terms of between husband and wife. You know, my, my marriage is not going to be lived in the light in front of other people. Certain aspects of it got to be, 
There's, there's a privacy there. But between husband and wife, confession has to be honest. I can't, I can't halfway confess or dishonestly confess. Number two, I need to understand confession and exposure leads to humility. And humility is a good thing. The enemy of a good marriage is pride. That's what happened with Adam and Eve. God says to Adam, hey, what's up? Adam says, the woman. Eve, what's up? The serpent. It's just pride, self-preservation. Point the finger. And so uh, confession and exposure in that confession leads to humility. It's humbling to confess my sin to my spouse. Isn't it? I mean, it's humbling. But it's the opposite effect to be guarded and defensive. As humbling as it is to confess my sin, if I don't confess it, then I'm going to become guarded and I'm going to become defensive and that's going to drop. Now the wall that should be the shield that should be protecting us has been replaced with a shield or a wall that is dividing us. God wants the wall to be there, but he wants you both to be inside of it. He doesn't want it to be between you. Confession uh, and exposure leads to that humility. Number three, true confession keeps excuses out of the equation of my marriage. Your marriage doesn't need excuses. You don't need excuses or like, never mind. Number four, as a practice confession of my own sin against my spouse, as a practice of confession of my own sin against my spouse, I'll become quicker to admit my wrongs. When, I be, when, when, when confession becomes a practice of my marriage, a, a, an exercise within the relationship, then I'll be quicker to confess. The first time you confess that, you know, I'm an idiot and I did this and I'm sorry and I'm, you know, I, I'm not led like I should or I, you know, and it can be very difficult, but as we confess our sins to one another, even shortcoming, maybe it's not, I think something that's important is maybe it's not sin that's committed directly against your spouse. You know, maybe it's coming home and, and laying in bed at night and saying, you know, I had a sucky attitude at work today. It was just bad. I just, I, mean, I, I was, I was not the light of the gospel to people and confess that to your spouse. Because it's not, maybe it's not a situation where you can go confess it to a bunch of customers that came through your retail store that day or something like that. Just that confession of, you know, I just, I didn't, I wasn't the light of the gospel today. And he confessed that and you pray for one another. Number five, confession of my own sin will lead me to be more attentive and sincere toward my spouse and his or her own confession. My confession toward my spouse will then humble me and lead me to be attentive when my spouse is con- in, in an attitude of confession toward me. So it's a, it's a mutual thing that we, that we are in, in a, a constant relationship of confession to one another. Number six, confession will lead to encouragement. Humbling myself before the Lord and my spouse will lead to confident growth. When I humble myself before the Lord, when I humble myself before my spouse, that's going to lead to growth. It, it, it just does. It just unlocks growth in the life of a believer because it's, it's something that brings humility. Number seven. Uh, these will all be up on the app later, by the way. If, if you don't keep up, if you can't keep up. True confession will lead to changed behavior. True confession will lead to changed behavior. Now, this is important. Words need action. You confess the same thing 365 days straight. On about day 12, she's going to be going, yeah, whatever. Because confession needs to lead to action. Oh, honey, I did it again. Well, when you do the same thing and you confess the same thing one million times, it pretty quickly becomes kind of like that's the identifying characteristic of who you are. Confession should lead to healing and victory over that thing I'm confessing. Now, that doesn't mean that I won't fall into it 
a year from now and 10 years from now and that we're not going to stumble through life. But, but the, the overall trajectory will be a trajectory that is pursuing holiness, that is defining, you know, th- that trajectory will define that that sin in my life will, will define it as, as a sin that is being conquered by the work of holiness in my life. So it's not that I confess and I confess and I confess just so I can go do it again tomorrow. It's not like, it's not like confession to a priest. Most of us didn't grow up Catholic. Some of you did. You, know, you kind of go in and you do confession. I talked to a guy recently. He said, man, I went to confession the other day. First time in 17 years. I was like, whew, I bet that felt good. Wouldn't it be weird? I mean, it's just like, like kind of unload and you leave and you just feel good about yourself. You know? Well, it's not like I confess so that I got a clean slate so I can go do the same thing tomorrow. Words need action. I cannot confess my sin regularly to my spouse if I'm not pursuing Christ. You're not pursuing Jesus. She don't want to hear it. Oh, you know, I'm, I, just, I, can't, I, can't, I can't control my drinking. I just can't do it. I can't. Well, if you're not pursuing Christ, of course you can't do it. Do it in the flesh, you can't do it. Because flesh is weak. It's not just, it's, it's, I cannot confess sin and be taken seriously if I'm not pursuing Christ. Number nine, last one, confession will drive me to put my hope in Christ. Confession will drive me to put my hope in Christ. He is the author of my salvation. He alone has the power to save. He conquered death, sin, hell, and the grave. He can heal, save, strengthen, and grow my marriage. So confession drives me to put my hope in Christ. When I confess, I realize my inability to do or be what God's called me to do or be, which should drive me towards Christ because he's sufficient. He's sufficient. Now, understanding the importance of confession, we also need to understand the importance of debt cancellation. So in other words, as, as the recipient of that confession, how do I respond to that? Because that confession is completely devalued when you heap reproach on your spouse. When he comes and says, you know, I've messed up and here's what I did and I'm sorry. And you go, you're an idiot. You know, I don't expect any more out of you. Well, that's you're heaping reproach in that confession. I remember when I was, uh, I had the, I had the, the, the gift of a scholarship to go to college. So my, my freshman year, I got a scholarship. Well, it was great. College was paid for. It was easy. It was a piece of cake. It was an expensive education. I don't know a dime. Okay. So I head off school. Great. Well, after the first year, I realized I don't want this scholarship because I don't, I didn't want to be involved in, it was an athletic scholarship and I was done. I was, I, that phase of life I wanted to be done. I just want to be done. Didn't enjoy it. Want to be done. So I knew that that meant giving up an I mean, an athletic scholarship to pursue an academic education. So I remember showing up uh, for registration back then. You, you show up and, and go through this registration thing, you know, at the beginning of the semester. So it was the fall semester. I show up and I go through there and they set me up on a payment plan. I was working two or three jobs and they set me up on a payment plan, but I couldn't make enough money to make those payments. So the semester ended and I'm going back for registration for the second semester realizing, man, I still owe the school two, $3,000, maybe four or five. I don't remember. It's a lot of money. Plus I got to figure out how I'm going to pay for the next semester. And I just go in there thinking they're probably going to kick me out today. I'm probably, they're probably going to not let me enroll or register or whatever. I remember walking up and go through this line. I walk up to the, you know, the, the business office people and, and, and I sit down cause they're, what they're going to do is try to give you a loan. And I was just, I'm, some of you are stubborn. And so you identify with this. I'd already made my mind up. I wasn't going to take a loan. And so when I make my mind up like that, don't uh, you break my arms, twist my arm behind my back, whatever. I ain't taking a loan. So I walk up sitting down kind of like, what you got? 
Like, try to convince me. You know, and I thought, and I thought, I'm probably going to have to quit school for the semester, get a job, and come up with a plan B. I walked up and sat down. Lady says, oh, let's see, it shows here that you owe X thousand number, number of dollars, you know. And she says, uh, hmm, let's see, we have, um, and I said, I don't want a loan. She said, okay, okay. Um, let's see, you, you know what, actually, it looks like your debt has been completely canceled. And I said, hmm? Because I learned when I was a kid, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And I keep thinking, it's just a loan gimmick. You know, like what? And, and the more I talked through this with this lady, my debt was canceled from the previous semester and it was paid in full for the upcoming semester. And, and to this day, I have no idea how that happened. Other than I can look at the trajectory of my life and know that was the semester that I met little. And I know that God, that God had me there to put me on a course. But I can remember sitting there. I can remember sitting there just kind of sweaty armpits, flushed face, thinking, how am I going to deal with this? Uh, uh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And all of a sudden, just like the oxygen got cleaner. I quit sweating. Life was good. I remember walking out of the room that day going, this is awesome. Life is good, you know? And there's this, there's this alleviation of pressure when debt is canceled. And maybe you've paid something off or someone has helped you to pay something off or you've been gifted. But I'll tell you something. The, one of the most enriching aspects of a marriage is debt can- cancellation. The opportunity to alleviate from your spouse the pressure that comes in carrying their own sin. If he or she has the humility to come in confession we need to have the humility to work towards debt cancellation how many marriages would have new life if forgiveness would become an identifying characteristic of each spouse last night we talked about reconciliation as the identifying characteristic of a marriage well this is a big component of reconciliation reconciliation is not just something i receive it's something i give and so forgiveness is a a, a huge component of that The most gratifying part of confession is the obedience I act in when I confess my sin. So it's very gratifying to confess sin because I'm being obedient to the Lord. But the very next most gratifying part of confession is when I receive forgiveness and grace from my spouse. It's the best feeling. I'm so thankful for little's not a grudge holder. And do something stupid, knucklehead move, and then you, you know, you just you think, ah, I mean, why did I do that? What was I thinking? Why I'm, you know, you kind of beat yourself up, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, it's gone. It's just, just, it's because she erased it. It's gone. It's canceled. She's not holding that against me. She's not holding that against me. And when she's not holding it against me, it doesn't become an identifying characteristic in my life. It's not something that now is identifying me. It's I'm removed from it. Colossians two, Colossians two. How do we do this? Well, everything's got to go back to the gospel in marriage. Colossians 2, verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. The cross doesn't offer us a payment plan. It is debt cancellation. How, how is that possible? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. 
He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. One of the greatest opportunities we have as husbands and wives is to put to open shame the sin of our spouse by nailing it to the cross. Seeing it as covered under the blood of Jesus. And making a mockery of that sin before the enemy. And saying that sin has no power, no control, no dominion in this relationship. The identifying characteristic in this relationship is reconciliation, not sin. And part of that is forgiveness extended, the cancellation of debt. It's the way we should approach marriage. But to be honest, most marriages struggle at the core as a result of a refusal to let go of and cancel out the debt of a spouse. When I fail to release my wife from her shortcomings and failures, I set up a trajectory of failure. Here's some key causes of this that we can guard against. So, this, so, so, so here's what we tend to do. We tend to take the sin of our spouse and tuck it away. We, we tuck it away for different reasons. So I feel better when I mess up or just because I'm a grudge holder or just because I don't understand forgiveness in a gospel-focused sense. But when we do that, so, so the failure to release that person, as, as much as I have responsibility to confess sin, have responsibility to extend grace in that confession. And sometimes even when my spouse doesn't confess, I'm releasing that person. But the failure of that is rooted in a, in, 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 in a, a few different things. Number one, it's rooted in an immature and unrealistic expectation of what that person should be. Lot, I mean, a lot of us, we get married young. You know, I think we were, we were 20, 21, you know, we get married. You think about it. Okay. Now, if you're, if you're 20, 22, I'm not, this is not at all to be insulting, but, but what you know, as a 21 year old in life experience, it's just different than what you know, as a 41 year old, it's just different. It just is. That's the, that's the nature of it. And I'm sure that when I'm 61, I'll go, man, I was an idiot when I was 41. What a moron. What I thought I knew, you know, and, and I'm each, each passage of time in life, you realize, and, and how many of us, we take the sins that were committed in the immaturity and youth of our marriage when we were, when we were young and we kind of seal those sins into the relationship. Well, she didn't meet this expectation. He was, it wasn't all I thought it was going to be. And that first year or two or three of marriage, there were failures here and failures there. And we just kind of seal that in stone and concrete into the relationship. When what sanctification is, is it's God continually growing us more into the image of Christ. So when a, when a 50 year old couple has been married for 30 years, they should be growing more into the image of Christ. And a lot of marriage failure, I'm convinced happens because we take things that happen in those first few years or even before the actual marriage. And we just kind of lock down on those things. We hold those things. Immaturity, boy, immaturity demands grace. I mean, the things that you do as a young husband or wife, you later you look back and think, man, if I did that now, I would. There's a need for grace. And immaturity and unmet and unreal, unrealistic expectations tend to set us up for failure. Number two, trajectory of failure. We fall into comfortable patterns. We fail to confess. We fail to reconcile. We fail to extend forgiveness because a lot of times we just get comfortable. It's kind of like diet and exercise. It's comfortable to sit on the couch and watch TV. It's comfortable. I enjoy that. There's a lot of days where I think, I just want to do nothing today. You know, and, and that's, 
We've, it's always easier to do nothing. Always. Across the board. It's always easier to do nothing. than It's like if I said to you, hey, you can dig this ditch with this spoon or this shovel. I'm going to take the shovel. Easiest, easiest course of action. Oh, or here's a track hoe. How about that? Mm, I'll, I'll take that. I take C. Okay. Now, all of a sudden, you measure track hoe to spoon. And that excavator is a lot easier way to dig the ditch. Okay. So we're always looking for the easy route. And sometimes that's smart. But what you have to learn is that in biblical, what we have to learn is that in biblical marriage, the easiest route looks like the hardest route. It's submission to Christ. It's a constant surrender to Christ. When Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden's light. But it is a yoke and it is a burden. And before we're yoked with him and allowing him to carry that burden, it's hard, it's heavy. So we get comfortable. We don't give thanks. We don't confess sin. We don't extend forgiveness. Those things are all hard work. We don't labor over the scripture. We don't increase in our knowledge of the word of God. That's hard work. Number three, as a result, we establish defenses. So, so in this trajectory of failure where I'm holding my spouse's sin against her, I then establish defenses because the reality is I know my own sin. David says, I know my own sin. It's ever, it's ever before me. I mean, you, you think, you know, your wife's sin really good. You think, you know, your husband's sin really good. You know, your sin better because you know, the feelings that motivate that sin or the, the guilt and grief that accompanies it. So we establish defenses. So I gotta, if I'm going to attack, I've also got to guard and defend. Number four, as a result of that, in this trajectory, this downward trajectory, we nurture dislike. How many couples just don't like each other? I always think it's so sad. He's like, eh, we love each other. We don't like each other. Bull, is he? No. No. I don't really... I love her, but you know, I just don't like her. Yeah, you know what? You're a moron. <laughs> now I bet she don't like you. you know? <laughs> it's it's but but seriously, when we hold on to these things, we nurture dislike. I mean, what's to like? Why would I want to spend time with this person? Why would I like this person? They defend they're they're always defensive. And they're always on the offensive. And they hold grudges. They hang everything over my head and they don't for, extend forgiveness. And, and, and it's, I, don't, I just don't like being around this person. I mean, one of the most sobering, world-shaking conversations I ever had with my wife was just a few years into our marriage where she said, you know, I think I've gotten to a point where I just don't like you. It's like, <clears throat> seriously, I would rather have been punched in the nose squarely with a heavy fist. Then to hear that and just took the wind out of me. You don't like me? There's a lot of marriages exist like that, don't they? A lot of marriages where they just don't like each other. There's like, a lot of people I'd rather be with. A lot, of, a lot of people I'd rather hang out with. You got a problem in your marriage when you would rather spend time with your best friend while your husband sits over there at a distance or your wife sits in the house and you're out, you know, in the shed or the shop or whatever. You, you got a problem. We got a problem when, I, when our... When our best friend is not our spouse. Marriage is not what it's supposed to be. It's just not. As a result, we'll become overwhelmed in this trajectory. This nurturing, this dislike can be overwhelming and suffocating. Following a pattern of dislike, reproach, mistrust, and condemnation is exhausting. Just to live in that is overwhelming. Some of you, some of you right now, you're here this weekend. 
That's where you live. You're exhausted. You're tired. Because you've just lived in this pattern of reproach and dislike and nurturing these, these bitter feelings. And it's exhausting. So then the natural reaction is then you, you begin to envy other marriages, other couples. You envy other, you know, guys, you envy some other guy. I mean, his wife's awesome. I wish my wife was like that. Ladies, oh, I wish, man, her husband's so, I wish we had what they've got. Well, you begin to envy. You begin to envy. God gave you the marriage you have. We have a tendency to compare God's gift to those of others. That's where Thanksgiving is so important. Thanksgiving guards us against envy. It guards us against jealousy and envy and covetousness. And the last thing in this downward trajectory is that it, it leads to fantasies of escape. I want out. I mean, eventually I tell myself that I'm the victim of this person's sin. I'm the victim of this person's selfishness. I convince myself that I just need out. There has to be an escape. God wants me to be happy, right? These fantasies can lead in a thousand directions that all will in the end bring destruction. I mean, God wants me to be happy. Surely if he wants me to be happy, he doesn't want me to be with him her you know, not happy it's destructive thinking so in closing let's analyze why people don't forgive so so here's here's what we've looked at these, there's these five reasons that we see adam and eve's marriage kind of unravel and erode so how do we guard against that erosion well first we begin with confession then we extend grace and forgiveness when we don't do those things we create a downward trajectory it ultimately leads to a fantasy of an escape so let's analyze why people would not do. Why, why is it that maybe you're not extending forgiveness? Why is it that you're not extending grace? Why is it that maybe you're on this downward tra- trajectory? Well, we keep, uh, we keep a record of wrongs because, what is, uh, because of what is expedient and convenient for ourselves. Self-preservation says, well, I'm going to keep a record of wrongs. That way I feel better about myself. If I can measure what I perceive to be my failure against what I perceive to be my spouse's failure, then I can feel pretty good about myself. And all of a sudden I'm the victim and she's the aggressor. We, we tend to do that. If I can put myself in the victim's chair, listen, this is the society we live in. Every problem anybody's got, it's somebody else's fault. We, call, we talk about things like self-esteem and victimization. We ought to talk about sin and pride because that's what it's rooted in. We keep a record of wrongs because it fuels self-preservation. Genesis 3.12, Adam points at that puny, wimpy finger at his wife and says, God, it's your fault. He's, he's pointing at her, but he's blaming God. Remember, it's not about romance, it's about worship. So even in blaming her, he's really blaming God. He says, the woman you gave to me, you gave her to me. He's doing this. Point at God, point at her. Listen, when you're pointing at your spouse, you're blaming God for your problems. And, 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 and Christ already took the blame for your problems. You can't redefine the blame. He took the blame, nailing it to the cross. So we can't redefine the blame. Well, God, I, I, it's her. So, so, so how, do we, how do we analyze this lack of willingness to forgive? Number one, we don't forgive because debt is power. The lender is in power over the borrower, right? This is common economics. You're a slave to the lender. Debt is power. So if I can set myself up in a position of, of, of debt holding, holding another person's weakness or failure against them gives me moral high ground. It's easy to defend moral high ground. 
If I'm in the moral low ground, it's hard to defend that position. But if I put myself in a position of moral high ground, then I can defend against whatever she would say. Oh, you, you. No, I'm right. You're wrong. Debt is power. Hold that debt over her. Number two, debt leads to self-righteousness. When I hold on to my spouse's sin, I'm able to convince myself that I'm the one in the right and she's the one in the wrong. Number three, debt creates an attitude of self-entitlement. Self-entitlement. We live in a, in a world wrought with self-entitlement. One of the most kind of, I realized where we were as a society back in 2005 or six, I think it was six when uh, Katrina hit, uh, Hurricane Katrina. And I remember, I remember I was watching this news deal. It was like a week later. You know, they've, they've got people like in these shelters and they're giving them food and water. And I remember this lady complaining to the camera. She's angry at the president because all she's been given to drink for seven days is bottled water. And I remember, I remember looking at that and going, kind of like light bulb. That's where we are as a society. Entitlement. I deserve more than a drink of water. I'm out here in the hot sun and sleeping on a cot. You should bring me some sweet tea. Carrying my spouse's wrongs make me, make me feel like she owes me something. If I, if I carry her wrongs, if I maintain that debt, it makes me feel like, man, she owes me. I'm holding this debt. She owes me. Number four, debt is weaponry. My spouse's failures and sins are like a loaded gun that I can point at them. That's the worst way to help your spouse grow out of sin. You take their failures and their sin, load that gun up and point it at them. You're not going to help them grow. You're not going to help them have victory over that sin. Debt is like a weapon. Number five, debt puts me in God's position so that I become the judge. It's self-exaltation. It's self-deification. I mean, I'm in the position of God, so I'm the judge over my spouse. If I can put myself in a position where I'm the judge over that spouse, so I've got to hold her debt. I've got to hold that over her. I've got to hold that to, to, to maintain that power. The answer to all of this, going back to the beginning, the answer to all of this is to live a life in a marriage of thanksgiving, confession, forgiveness, worship, and obedience, all for the glory of God and for the sanctification of my spouse. Give thanks. Confess sin. Extend grace. Sanctify, sanctify, sanctify the Word of God at work in our marriages. That's what's going to not only save us, but strengthen us, grow us, and give us a gospel-centered, gospel-saturated, gospel-focused marriage. I'm going to pray, and then the girls are going to come out and, and, and sing a song. Just while well, we take a moment before we head out, let's just take a moment. Let's just reflect. Reflect. There's a lot of information, a lot of lists. I'm going to challenge you as, 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 as we reflect on what God's calling us to as husbands and wives. Examine each of these areas just in the next few minutes. In the next few minutes, because the tendency we have is when we walk out the doors, we're not going to think about it. So in the next four or five minutes, what's Thanksgiving look like in your life? Make a note so that you come back to it later today. What's confession look like? How are you extending forgiveness? Is your confession followed with action and activity? I'm not just confessing so I can do more. Wipe the slate clean so I can go do it again. Confession followed by activity. What what does it look like in in terms of how you extend grace? Where is the sanctification of your spouse on the list of your life priorities? Examine these things. Are you holding debt? Are you holding sin over your spouse? The one that God's given you? Are you holding that debt over him or her? Let's examine these things. Gotta pray that as we examine our hearts, 
in light of your word that we would live with conviction, that we would live with brokenness, that we would live with a joy and an encouragement of the instruction that comes from your word. I pray that we would learn to confess sin to one another, learn to worship together, learn to have a focus in our individual lives, in our marriages, in our homes, on the word of God. So literally the word of God is, is the power at work in our homes. I pray we would become people of grace. God, there's people, there's marriages here. They've been holding grudges just for years, just holding on to stuff that happened a year, five years, 10 years, 20 years ago. God, I pray that by the blood of Jesus, we'd see it forgiven and cleansed and nailed to the cross and disarmed. I pray we would, we would remove guilt and, and have ministries of reconciliation to one another. I love you. I pray that as we reflect on these things, Holy Spirit would speak to us, encourage us, and grow us. In Jesus' good name.